welcome to this week's episode of the Arts Hub Show. You are tuned in to Edinburgh Student Radio Station Fresh Air Radio. I'm Esme and I'm going to be here for the next couple hours to talk you through a bit of art, arts news and music. Nineteenth century London with William Blake and Dante running from three beasts. Um, that is our artwork of the week. Uh, we'll also be having our three-in-one one uh, story through song extravaganza on the hour, where we'll be talking about um, an artist or a place with three songs linking that. And then also, you got to stay tuned because we've also got the Arts Hub Bulletin, where we'll be covering all sorts of fabulous things. It's all very exciting. talk about everything and anything um, so do grab a cup of tea and join me in a wondrous journey through the world of the arts
And that was Fish Go Deep by The Cure. Oh no, Fish Go Deep with the song The Cure and The Cause. Hi, if you have just tuned in, this is the Arts Hub Show. Um, I'm Esme, I'm here for the next two hours to talk about art, music and arts news. Um, yeah, it's the 10th, oh, it's the 12th of March. It's a Sunday and the weather is absolutely delightful. It's been... Um, freezing the last week but today it's really really warm which is nice spring is here um and uh yeah we're gonna just start off this show as always with the artwork of the week if you are new to this show we always have the artwork of the week in the first hour um and i comprise a little synesthetic playlist to go with it um and this week we are transporting ourselves to 19th century london with william blake and his painting dante running from the three beasts from 1824 to 1827 that was the period in which he painted this or this large series which he did toward the end of his life and um it's all based around dante's uh epic poem divine comedy um what is uh dante's divine comedy well it's an italian narrative poem by dante alighieri um which began in 1308 and he completed it around 1321 so it took him a rather long time to write and he wrote it shortly before his death and it is very widely considered the preeminent work in italian literature and one of the greatest works of world literature of all time it's an absolute legendary piece of work um and the plot of the divine comedy is very simple it's a man generally assumed to be dante himself and uh, he is miraculously enabled to undertake an ultra mundane journey which leads him to visit the souls in hell purgatory and paradise so this week on this today's sunday we are getting a bit religious a lot of biblical themes here um and this rendition of uh, um, Dante running from the three beasts by William Blake is uh, a very interesting visualization of this poem and I found it very fascinating um, if you're at home I do encourage listeners to um, <clears throat> to find the painting potentially online um, google it bing it whatever you fancy and just have a little look and uh, maybe it'll help um, accompany you whilst uh, listening to the discussion um, but it's a very interesting piece and this is um, William Blake is, is poet of course everyone knows him as the great English poet um, and he didn't start getting uh, successful from his work until he was in his 60s and it was towards the end of his life really when he started getting uh, he never got much money from doing his poetry or painting but he started getting at least some recognition towards the end of his life in his 60s and he did this particular uh, series um, when he was in his 60s um, and he was commissioned to make it by um, a friend uh, John Linnell and it's a series of illustrations so this is one of many and it's yes as I said based on Dante's Divine Comedy and Blake was in his late 60s and the contemporary account informs us that he designed a hundred watercolors of this subject during a fortnight's illness in bed so when he was ill this is when he completed this legendary collection of works and uh, for me that kind of reminds me of, of covid and people being very um of course that is a lifelong gone now but 
Um, during the lockdowns and people were stuck inside, I feel like a lot of creativity took place and a lot of great music and art and literature was produced and written in those times of isolation and illness. Um, and uh, yeah, it reminds me a bit of that. That's how these works came to being um, through a fortnight of illness. So you can always find inspiration in the most mundane moments. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the one of the first illustrations he did um, titled Dante Running from Three Beasts. So this is, it's interesting, it's an interesting work because it's depicting hell, but it's a very beautiful landscape that he is uh, painting here. It is, um, it looks almost like paradise, but I suppose this is the outer, the very outer edge, the outer seam of hell. Um, and uh, things haven't got too grisly just yet, but uh, slowly, slowly he'll uh, descend and uh, find himself amongst all sorts of horrors. Um, yeah.
My Funny Valentine by Blake Evans. Hello, you are tuned in to Fresh Air Radio and this is the Arts Hub Show and I'm here for two hours and uh, right now we are talking about the artwork of the week which is William Blake's Dante Running from the Three Beasts from 1824 to 27 um, from his collection which uh, he, in which he did a, a, a series of illustrations all based on Dante's divine comedy, the legendary epic poem. Um, and uh, just to give you a bit of context around this particular illustration um, where Dante is running from the three beasts, which was my favourite out of the collection, um, I found a very nice little passage from the Tate Modern which explains Uh, where in the story this is um, to relate the painting to the literature. So here we are. The divine comedy opens with Dante lost in a wood in a fearful valley. Finally, he sees a hill on which the sun is shining and his heart fills with hope. But as he starts his climb, he is confronted by three beasts. And you can see this in the painting. Um, I highly recommend you, uh, if you're sitting at home, uh, having a chill cuppa, to go uh, search up this painting and have a little look. But um, yeah, then first comes a leopard that, while not really frightening him, does block his path. Then comes a ferocious, ravenous lion, followed by a she-wolf. Dante is terrified and is losing all hope of climbing the hill when a man appears. It is Virgil, the Roman epic poet. He has been sent by Beatrice, the woman Dante loved and who inspired him to write, to lead him on a journey of discovery through hell, purgatory and paradise. So to explain the allegory, Dante, busied about the affairs of the world, has wandered from the path of righteousness. He tries to find the path back, but is diverted by worldly pleasure, which is symbolized here in this painting by the leopard. Then he's also diverted by worldly ambition, which is symbolized by the lion, and then by avarice, which is symbolized by the she-wolf. Virgil, who represents reason, has come to lead Dante to Beatrice, who represents divine revelation and the state of grace. So this whole series and this whole epic poem and this wonderful painting, for me it's all about a journey and uh, life's journeys, the ebbs and flows of life and time and what happens um, on this game that we have been born into, that is life. It's all about that journey and finding your way home. But here you can see that uh, Dante is in a Christ-like pose and appearance, wearing robes, having long flowing locks, and um, the exaggerated terror pose of the fleeing Dante. So there's a Christ-like pose and then there's a terror pose, and uh, it's completely, it's it's swollen with biblical imagery and uh, references to the Bible and particularly lots of religious artwork that would have been um, around, uh, if we contextualise, to William Blake's uh, life and the the period in which he's living early, at this time, early 19th century London, which was a crazy time, but more about that later. Um, If we contextualise, the religious imagery will have been, in his lifetime, 
absolutely everywhere, um, particularly around Europe. It was uh, almost, yeah, intensely, like offensively everywhere. So he is referencing these old, uh, maybe Byzantine images and things that you're seeing everywhere culturally within Europe at this time. Um, but here, the beasts, the three beasts hardly look that terrifying at all. Blake, in fact, seemed to have difficulties depicting wild animals. Um, so although this is meant to be the first stage of hell from the Divine Comedy, there's something very joyous and charming and uh, tame about the painting, which I found quite interesting. These three beasts, although ghoul-like and uh, definitely referential to gargoyles and gothic gargoyles and all those horrible things, um, you know, evil spirits and you know, so on and so forth. They are friendly in some way. And the colours that William Blake has used here, particularly with the use of watercolour, the colours are so delicately blended and um, luminous. They completely... Uh, the, the, the piece is swollen with rainbow colours and light. And to me, it doesn't seem hellish really at all um, however this is the first stage of hell the first stage of Dante's journey through the three realms and um, yeah it seems to me not not half bad not half bad at all Time. 
And that was The Flood by the Blue Orchids from 1980, a song which I think perfectly resonates the floods of light, colour and water in William Blake's Dante Running from Three Beasts from 1824. So, William Blake, I think it's time we talk a bit about him and his life and where he was in his life when he painted this series for um, Dante's Divine Comedy, um, which he did in his 20s and uh, a contemporary source says that he was actually bedridden for a fortnight and it was in that period of illness that he produced these illustrations, which for me really resonates with COVID and um, all the beautiful artwork, music and literature that was produced during those times of hardship but William Blake um, he was he's known as the legendary London uh, poet of course a romantic uh, one of the head uh, guys in the romantic movement from the early 19th century and uh, the romantic period if you like that whole so the time within within history, uh, William Blake was very much at the forefront of, of, of all that. He was born in 1757 in London, um, but as I had said previously, his recognition as an artist and a poet um, only started uh, being of worth when he was in his 60s. So he was a late bloomer, or he was late to the to the to the game in terms of getting any recognition. But my God, when he started getting recognition, of course, he he completely bulldozed. He became uh, one of the most famous poets uh, of, of, of from England ever. And uh, it's amazing what he produced in his in his later years or his later years. But um, after following a traditional artistic career as a as an apprentice engraver, he attended the Royal Academy, but he actually didn't like the Royal Academy. He he didn't take well to the stifling atmosphere, and he clashed a lot with the ideals of the Academy's founding members, especially Sir Joshua Reynolds. So he left the Academy. Um, at this point, he's 21, and he's a professional engraver, um, and he decides to uh, become an illustrator and start publishing his own work. And his first book, Poetical Sketches was published in 1783. From then on, he published everything himself, completely independently. He produced most of his famous works, for example, the legendary Songs of Innocence from 1789 and Songs of Experience from 1794 by engraving both words and pictures on the same page and um, or on the same plate with engraving, of course, it's on a plate. But his, uh, this is a lasting style and he was one of the first people to really do this and modernise the idea of having text and illustration or imagery uh, as one full artwork in harmony. And it's something I've always loved is when people, who, artists, uh, who work in various different mediums, combine the mediums. So whether it's art or music or poetry, they combine them all to create one whole, um, one whole artwork, which is all um, speaks to one another in in a, in a harmonious way. And William Blake did this very well. And it it makes perfect sense that he illustrated Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, for he's been doing this his whole life with his own poetry. He, he had a, an, an, a knack for illustrating um, poetry and um, it makes perfect sense that he did this with, you know, the, the famous epic poem, 
uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. But he did struggle to make a living from his work during his lifetime. But uh, his influence and ideas are possibly the strongest of all the Romantic poets. So it's it's the classic trope that the artist doesn't get the the recognition until they've passed. And it wasn't until he passed that he would start making money big big bucks from his work which is typical but um throughout his life he did struggle in that sense but um yeah that's a bit of context into Blake and his life as a a full well-rounded artist not just a poet um, but an illustrator and a painter watercolorist and engraver Um, and something which I find particularly fascinating about his work is that he calls his poems songs and there's been a lot of research into why he does this and why he um, calls his poems songs rather than poems. Um, and he's actually well known amongst his acquaintances as a, whenever he would, he wouldn't read his, his poems, he would sing them. Um, and he would sing them in social gatherings. Um, and there was something very magical about that he found about poetry and the rhythm and the melodic element within poetry and how it's um, so intrinsically linked to music and sound. And uh, um, it, for him, it was all about the sounds and the musical aspect within his poetry. And he called them all songs. And it was very, it, it combines, again, different mediums of art and uh, creates a lovely full uh, work which is multi-sensory um, in many ways uh, appealing to the to the ears and the eyes and uh, everything else in between
Pilgrim Song by The Gloaming, a very lovely song uh, by a fabulous folk band, a modern folk band, and uh, I thought it was very relevant to um, William Blake's Dante running from three beasts, with it being the Pilgrim's Song, the journey which Dante is going on could be described as a type of pilgrimage in which he ends his journey within paradise. But now I want to talk a bit about the biblical inspirations for this artwork. The artwork of the week, if you have just tuned in, is William Blake's Dante Running from the Three Beasts from 1824 to 1827. An illustration um, which is part of a series of illustrations which William Blake um, painted for, well, to, to accompany uh, and visualize the legendary Dante's Divine Comedy, um, which was a 1300s epic poem. Uh, but the biblical aspects and inspiration of this painting, I think, is quite interesting. Uh, Blake's early childhood was actually dominated by spiritual visions which influenced his personal and working life. Um, he was very influenced by the Bible and mystical and religious themes from this early age and it had a very profound effect on him and his work and his career um his whole body of work has uh, it, it has a lot of biblical um references um <clears throat> his artistic inclinations began when his father purchased copies of drawings of greek antiquities that he used to undertake engravings so not only was he influenced by biblical um inspirations but also he had great uh, influence from Greek antiquities, um, Michelangelo, Raphael, um, Albrecht Dürer, all the classics, and he was exposed to all these great works and great historic uh, figures um, from a very young age. And um, his life was very characterized however, by religion and mysticism. And yeah, as I said previously, he, he claims to have had many visions of a religious nature. And although he was not recognized, um, or revered in his lifetime. Uh, the painting is a culmination of the themes of his life. This, this one beautiful illustration really shows all these inspirations that Blake had, the biblical inspirations, the Greek and classics uh, inspirations, and also very much the Gothic. Um, around this time, Gothic revivalism was in, it was very trendy, and Gothic architecture completely littered Europe. Littered? Eh, a bit unfair, but it was, comp it was everywhere. Um, Gothic imagery was left, right and centre, and um, he uses a lot of Gothic imagery actually in this particular painting, um, but I'll explain why after another song. Mm -hmm. 
Elizabeth Cotton. I thought that tune was uh, very relevant to this painting um, by William Blake. Um, the painting Dante running from the three beasts from 1824 to 27, where Dante is in a way symbolically um, on a journey to find his way home. So gothic, there was a lot of gothic imagery within this uh, artwork of the week. Um, for me, the thing that is obviously gothic is these three beasts, which are mirroring the imagery of gargoyles. Um, what are gargoyles? Well, gargoyles are a very typical uh, element within gothic architecture, particularly gothic architectural cathedrals or churches. Um, they were considered the spiritual protectors of churches um, as well as these creatures which would scare off demons and evil spirits but their actual function was to um, uh, be almost the, the plumbing or the uh, within the churches so when it would rain it would filter the, the rain off the roof and then it would go through the gargoyle's mouth onto the floor somewhere down down a stream so gargoyles had a very practical function um and if you see any gothic church you can it's, and it's raining you can very often see water spurting out of some hideous creature's mouth on the corner of some kind of <coughs> um, edge of a gothic building but these gargoyles um they are spiritual protectors and they scare off demons and evil spirits um, and they were very inspired from pagan eras and uh, were used to actually make churches feel more familiar to new Christians. This is a fun little fact, actually, because gargoyles, although very associated with Christianity, um, arguably architects, Gothic architects, when Gothic architecture started coming into, into play, they would use gargoyles to try and convert pagans to Christianity because gargoyles were uh, imagery which was familiar to, to, to the pagan paganism and pagan um, people. So when they used that same imagery within Christian churches, it was always like, oh well, we're not we're not so far removed from from uh, paganism, and it was a way of familiarising to new Christians using interesting, which is an interesting fact. So that was just something I found cool, but um. 
Yeah, so there is this gothic imagery within uh, this this illustration by William Blake. And he actually spent a lot of his time through his artistic career copying images in gothic churches around London, including Westminster Abbey. And he began to form his own artistic ideas and styles from these sketches that he did of gothic architecture within London. Um, Yeah.
of the Canyon by Joni Mitchell. Uh, for me, when I was looking at William Blake's uh, illustration painting, Dante running from the three beasts, uh, that song sprung to mind, although completely removed from anything uh, near America or anything to do with the Grand Canyon. There's something incredibly free and liberating about this painting, which made me think of Joni Mitchell and the liberating and uh, joyous song of Ladies in the Canyon. So we're reaching towards the end of the first half of this show um, where we've been discussing the artwork of the week with a lovely synesthetic playlist to accompany the discussion. Um, but before we close this chapter, I think it's time to read the poem which um, is paired with this illustration. So if you've just tuned in, this is William Blake's, um, it's a one of many uh, from a series, a painting, one of many from a series, which is paired with the epic poem Dante's Divine Comedy. And this is one of the first elements within the poem, um, one of the first uh, uh, milestones of, of the epic journey which is about to take place, where Dante travels through hell, purgatory, and then finally paradise. Um, here Dante is running from three beasts, he's on the very outer edge of hell and uh, this is the poem which goes with this scene, so here we go. Comforted again. I journeyed on over that lowly steep, the hinder foot still firmer, scarce the ascent began when lo, a panther, nimble, light, and covered with a speckled skin, appeared. Nor, when it saw me, vanished, rather strove to check my onward going, that oft times, with purpose to retrace my steps, I turned. his way aloft the sun ascended with those stars that with him rose when love divine first moved those its fair words so with joyous hope all things conspired to fill me the gay skin of that swift animal the matin dawn and the sweet season
And that was a reading of the poem which is paired with the artwork of the week. Um, a poem from the epic poem, uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. Uh, the, the moment within the story where Dante um, is on the very outer edge of hell and is greeted by three beasts. And William Blake's illustration where Danny, Dante is running from the three beasts is uh, the exact moment um, in which this this moment when the poem occurs so they're both paired one 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 and the other both together uh two sister artworks to create one beautiful whole um and that was read over the gloaming um the lobster a wonderful tune if you haven't heard it before and if you have liked my two songs which i've or the two songs i've played by the gloaming they are an incredible band i couldn't recommend them enough so do explore but we do need to wrap this up now um so i'm gonna just do a little a little visual analysis or just a little discussion um about the visuals of this painting and the artwork of the week so if you're at home um or just sitting in a cafe whatever it is going about your day and you you're taking five i recommend just uh popping on your phone or whatever um type into the search engine William Blake, Dante running from the Three Beasts from 1924 to 1927 and uh, with that we can uh, have a bit of a visual analysis moment together so here we go True to the subject matter of the Dante poem, the artwork deals with an imaginary view of the afterlife presented as reward or punishment and describes the writer's travels through purgatory, hell and paradise. In this particular painting, which depicts the opening incident of the narrative, Dante is pictured fleeing from some dark woods pursued by ferocious animals that are meant to represent worldly sin. The other figure represents the Roman poet Virgil, who acts as Dante's guide as he uh, traverses the many frightening circles of hell and purgatory. In this painting, the picture has a gothic yet slightly faded quality. The dramatic posture of Dante is shown in relief against that of his guide Virgil, and the sea and the sky have an unearthly quality. The animals are shown as ravening beasts from one of the many circles descending into hell and look poised to attack the writer if he does not make a hasty retreat. Here the leopard is particularly embellished with rainbow spots. All the figures are held within a very enclosed composition. It's as if it's a view into a window, a portal. We are observing a little window into a, a different world a different realm. It's almost claustrophobic as the trees and the leaves wrap round the entire composition, tying it up and uh, encasing it. The sun is in the mere distance. Um, before it there is a, a rainbow sea, a rainbow river if you like. And um, uh, is it good? Is it hopeful? Or is it something that's out of reach, out of touch? Is it an illusion? Is he trapped? Is Dante forever going to be taunted by this potential uh, paradise before him which he cannot touch, which is intangible, ephemeral, fleeting? 
thorns lying beneath his feet um, as if he's stepping through a ladder of thorns into the next section of his journey. The thorns are leading him and leading the pathway. Um, perhaps he's going to go somewhere darker, dingier, deeper into the depths of hell. Dante is almost being uh, surveillanced by these three fantastical beasts, which are all reminiscent of Gothic gargoyles. There is a great contrast between the left and the right of the painting. On the left, we see a beautiful but intangible vision um, of Virgil flying in a um, Christ-like pose. On the right, however, we see three aggressive, pouncing beasts bulging eyes ready to attack. A rainbow river in the horizon, and it's stuck in the horizon, it's frozen in time. Dante is earthly bound and entrapped with thorns, and although the multicolored aurora borealis glimmers illuminating the sky, it remains a mere distant thought, hope or dream. Sitting quietly and the 
And that was Rainbow River by Vashti Binyan, a song which I thought very nicely went with the rainbow quality of William Blake's Dante running from the Three Beasts from 1824 to 27. So with that, this concludes the first half of the show. And uh, with now we are entering um, the three-in-one story through song extravaganza. Here we go. So if you haven't been uh, listening to the show previously and experienced the three-in-one story through song extravaganza, this is the time for you to sit back, relax, and enjoy. Take five, or, well, not five, take take 15, around around 10 to 15 minutes, I'm going to play three songs back to back and you at home have to try and guess what songs um what what connects these songs is it a place is it a person is it potentially the development of a musical movement maybe it's a development of an artistic movement maybe it's um inspiration maybe these artists these three artists have a relationship with one another somehow um or maybe it's a singular artist and it's their journey who knows um i'm not going to give anything away but to sit back enjoy the tunes and yeah try and try and guess what is connecting these songs and without further ado let's begin I got that slow walking, talking, that, that slow walking, talking. My song saying it's laziness, but I better do some work. Well, the cat he sleeps the time around, like both night and day. But when I
What shall grow in your garden, my dear? If my seed comes to breed in your nursery. A dolphin or a diver or a true devotee. So your love might never grow thirsty. For us all is so real and so whole and so free. Body is so frail and so human are we? Are we dreaming? Is this the earth dreaming too? Will we live till we die, wondering why? The fruit of your labor, sleep at your breast. Will you nurture them softly and quietly? And when next thing the offspring have flown from the nest, can you love them and let them go quietly? For us all is so real and so old and so. So frail and so human are we? Are we dreaming? Is this the earth dreaming too? Will we live till we die, wondering why?
Includes our three-in-one story through song extravaganza, and at home, I'm sure we're all thinking, "Well, what on earth was connecting these three songs? What are you thinking? Um, do you reckon it's a person, the development of a musical movement, or a place, or maybe a relationship between people?" Hmm. Well, let me tell you. So, the first song you heard there was Slow Walking Talking Part 1 by The Wild Flowers. The Wild Flowers were a very cool band. They only released one album in the 60s, a band which consisted um, which consisted of Kevin Ayers and Mike Rutledge. Um, these two folks uh, together with David Allen produced the band Soft Machine, a really interesting band, a psychedelic rock band uh, which was introduced to me by my brother and uh, has had a big influence on me ever since. Um, I heard, we actually, me and my brother actually went to see them um, a couple years ago, Soft Machine, but they've changed a lot and a lot of the members have switched in and out over the years but the original members were David Allen, um, Kevin Ayers and Mike Ratledge and these two Kevin and Mike they were in the band um, The Wild Flowers. So but this is uh, not the, th the theme is actually of this week is David Allen. Um, so The Wild Flowers then formed Soft Machine with David Allen producing very interesting sounds there and then David Allen's song Memories was the second song and um, Memories is a very special song which I found on YouTube from David Allen's uh, Banana Moon album which came out in 
Well, I think it was 1971. Yeah, it was his first solo album, 1971. David Allen produced Banana Moon. And Banana Moon isn't on Spotify, interestingly. I'm not sure why. Um, Memories is on Spotify, but not the full Banana Moon album. But that's Banana Moon. And um, so that's after he had left Soft Machine, after he had um, parted ways with Kevin and Mike. And then the third song was The Garden um by david allen uh, a song he wrote at the very end of his life which um i think is very touching and it kind of shows that progression of him as an artist and uh, the scenes he was in and um the development of psychedelic rock which is uh, one of my favorite genres of music and um yeah also fun fact about david allen his name uh, nickname was divided alien which i think is hilarious and i've played a few of his songs over the last weeks um referencing this divided alien character and that is christopher david allen the man the myth the legend who lived between 1933 and 2015. an australian musician actually just thought I'd mention that. And he was very influenced by the Beat generation. In 1960, he moved to Europe with this this aspiration to be parts and involved with the Beat generation, which I think is quite nice. And then he moved to England in the mid 60s. So no, 1961, traveled to England, rented a room near Dover. And that's when he started looking for work as a musician. And it was in 1966 when the Soft Machine Band uh, formed. And um, that actually, fun fact as well, the Soft Machine, it was inspired by the name of um, a novel by the Burroughs, who was called the Soft Machine. So there we go. That concludes our three-in-one story, three-song extravaganza. Yes. There we go. Now, now that's all done, and we are slightly over time here, um, but that's okay. We've got to now get stuck into the into the arts hub bulletin. Yes, the arts hub bulletin is coming, and it's coming strong. And um, to kickstart the bulletin, I want to play a song by Nia Archives, which is, oh, let me try to find it, um, which is a new song on her new EP, which came out literally like three, four days ago. And I think Nia Archives is fab. I love what she's doing. She's kind of like a jungle DMB artist and... Um, This is my favorite song on her new EP. So to get some energy into all of you, I've unintentionally probably um, uh, lulled you all into a deep slumber. So let's wake you all up. Here we go. So tell me, Nia Archives, from her new EP. So tell me.
So Tell Me by Nia Archives from her new album, which has just come out a few days ago. So to the first um, bullet point, so to speak, of the Arts Hub Bulletin, which I want to talk about is uh, Noir K. Ninomia's uh, Noir in Bloom Fall Winter Collection from 2023. Yes, this was one of the most exciting runways I've ever seen and yeah, I'm just gonna state that. I'm gonna make that statement. This, I fa- I've never seen fashion like this ever. And I've kind of gone off the whole fashion world um, recently. I used to be really, I, you know, I used to wanna get into the fashion. I used to wanna do all that stuff. And then I've just, I've really gone off it with how commercial and posy and it's not very appealing. Um, but then suddenly something exciting is happening. This is what makes fashion so, so exciting is the stuff like this. Noir K, Ninamia's Noir and Bloom. This collection, I think it like broke the internet momentarily. On Instagram, I was getting so many recommendations of videos of this like absolutely incredible absolutely incredible uh, collection of of just clothes I mean can we even call them clothes that it's basically like sculpture on a human and um my favorite I think anyone who's who sees this and if you haven't seen it go online and definitely do a google search because this uh first the first piece that walks onto the runway it's like reflective flowers like ethereal reflective flowers that are shiny using like shiny fabric or material so that when the light hits this orb of wiggling flowers um it completely illuminates and speckles the audience with light so it really i I saw something which said that the, the the piece is almost like um, the embodied an embodiment of the soul of the human soul and I just loved that it's just so visually 
jarring and fab f- fabulous i'll say it and i really like how he uses um it's almost like a bit tacky but it, i'm not saying it's tacky i'm saying he's 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 using like bright pink luminous bows on repeat and using elements of sort of like fashion that you would see maybe like like um on dance moms you know like bright pink kind of sparkly really sort of kitsch stuff which i love i like anything sparkly i'm all for it and it he uses this but then like um combines it with uh beautiful um sort of uh, light fabrics and silks um, as well as then also contrasting that with buckles and quite punky uh, gothy um, belts and things and leather like harsh leathers so he's combining so many different styles which would seem immediately as a huge mismatch and like should look bad and ugly but it just works and it looks really badass it's like um because it is very feminine with the with the pink and the bows the excessive use of bows and the excessive use of like floral motifs and things but then he has like the leather and the belts and then he's got these like wispy skirts and sparkly bright red shoes and knee-length glittery socks i mean it just gets better and better and then these incredible hats. I mean, what's going on? They're like huge blocks of, of graphite that have been painted. And these poor models have had them strapped to their heads. But it works. And it looks stunning. And I think it's just very... It's just different. I haven't seen something like this. Because often with these runways, I'm constantly... Oh, I've seen that, I've seen that. But this is really unique. And it's very fantastical. Um, super fantastical it's like it's like entering a different world I mean it's it's very cool Um, I'm just gonna see what other people have written about this so (laughs) yeah so the opening looks are silver petaled flowers which are extending beyond more conventionally shaded blooms set the tone so this set the tone of the whole runway (laughs) And uh, Ninomiya said backstage that he had been working toward a blooming, and this was evident in the explosive anti-noir purples, blues and reds that began this collection. Um, He is freed from his defining bridal and um, jetted toward a profusion of blossoming ideas. Uh, Foam-threaded tied florals bounced fulsomely around the wearers' bodies as they bloomed down the runway. Net dresses and metallic finished polyester strips wound again around the physical forms within them like beckoning blooms. The molecular explosion at the end only emphasised the clear point of attraction. If only, though, this designer could articulate more these clothes with something to say. Because also, I couldn't find a single interview with the guy who had the the brains behind the works a very private um fashion designer from a from japan a japanese fashion designer who actually studied french literature in um tokyo before doing anything fashion based um which i quite like but he hasn't said anything so it's completely up to interpretation We're, we're left 
we're left in the dark. We're having to try and interpret this completely bizarre and incredible collection ourselves. And I think that's definitely saying something in itself. I mean, I want, I, I just really want to wear, I want to wear these clothes. And they kind of come to life. I really like how he's made the flowers and uh, the materials that are on the, on the body. Um, he very often, he's very no, he's known for obsessively working in so that the micro so he'll make lots and lots of the same thing in small scale and then combine all those little things to make uh, an illusion that's bigger so you can see that he's done this again and again in this collection and when they're walking the materials are moving around and wiggling as if it's alive so it's kind of a bit like extraterrestrial a bit like an alien or something like some kind of the human has been transformed into something completely different The truth will out A sense of words you cannot name A fence that put you in again The agony, the fantasy A twist on every page Something easy to repress You tucked it in under your dress The agony, the fantasy Something to be
Array by Lump, a really awesome band who I really want to watch live. Um, Laura Marling, Mike Lindsay, the dynamic duo have formed this wicked band. And I just thought that song went really nicely with our discussion on the fantastical, absolutely insane fashion collection uh, Noir in Bloom by Noir K. Ninamiya, the full winter collection of 2023. But now it's time to shift discussion elsewhere. So, here we go. It's now time to talk about what's happening in Edinburgh. So, um... I went to the Georgian house uh, the other the other day um, actually in Charlotte Square, and um, I, I quite like looking at um, uh, buildings and how people used to live um, back in the day. And I thought I went with my uh, an art course I'm doing. We went as a class to this place, and I thought it was actually so nice and charming. And I thought I'd encourage uh, some fellow listeners to go if they want to have a, a little historic day um go there the georgian house at charlotte square it's such a sweet place and it's basically an old um sort of manor house or manor house or town town manor house which had been uh, lived in by um the aristocracy uh throughout history and then in the new town when the new town of edinburgh was built um and um yeah, and then they've now made it look as though it would have done back in the day. And the thing that really made this visit so great was the people who worked there. The people who um, volunteer and work at this place know so much, like they know everything. And it was absolutely fascinating talking with all of them because they just, they they were like history wizards. They were telling, they, they had such really interesting, insightful things to say about who lived there, how many people had lived there, what Edinburgh was like at this time, the the Georgian Georgian era, like what was what was Edinburgh like? And for me the, the thing I drew from it most was like um was the insight into how unhygienic people were back then. Um, I mean, in the Georgian, I mean, this is late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, that's the set, the, the time frame in which, in which they'd um, made the house look. And um, at that time within Edinburgh, the old town was completely separate from the new town. So the new town was residential. There was no shops. There was no schools. It was just a place to live if you could afford to live there. So that was very much where the rich, um, often aristocrats, would live. And then the old town was where the peasants lived and the town folk. And the old town was so poor and um, run down and dirty and uh, it was riddled with disease and poverty um they couldn't afford to eat meat so the closest thing they would eat to meat was like the meat juice and that would be what they would have at christmas time or on birthdays um everyone was drinking beer because they couldn't drink water and the streets were completely there was no plumbing in edinburgh at this time and in the grand scheme of things this wasn't this isn't that long ago this is maybe like about 200 years or so it's not that far removed from today and it's just crazy how quickly um everything's modernized and changed because uh they had no plumbing they would chuck their their human waste into the streets and um even in 
the manor or in this house the Georgian house in Charlotte Square which was a, a house for a very rich uh, aristocrat family um, they didn't have toilets or anything so they would use tiny little pots that would be kept in drawers in the house so there'd be a wooden drawer and you'd open it and there would be like a pot which you'd use as a toilet and then when they would be finished they would just close the drawer and then they'd just leave it there all day until the, the maid or the scullery maid went to chuck it wherever they did chuck it I don't know in the streets I, pres- I presume so the thing that I found so cool well cool interesting is that if we went back in time just the smell of of houses even the rich of the rich like the richest people they they would have had the most disgusting smelling houses ever like compared to what we have nowadays I think um, and a part of me even felt that maybe it was more unhygienic living in a house where you're storing your waste in cupboards than if you were in the old town and you were poor and you because you you didn't have the space to store your waste so you just chucked it in the street but at least then it wasn't in the house so in a way it was almost more unhygienic the way the rich were living and they didn't wash their hands um, at all. And also, um, there was a, a, one of the helpers said something I thought was quite cool. It was like, they only would have, if you were rich, you'd only have one, no, two baths a year because they didn't have baths and the water, they didn't had no running water. So it was quite a lot of effort for the maids to have to fill up a bath and carry it up like three, four flights of stairs. And they didn't think it was beneficial. So, Again, the peasants would be swimming and cleaning themselves in local lakes and rivers, probably on a very regular basis, whereas the aristocrats were having maybe two baths a year. So again, I just found it quite fascinating how, how, um, yeah, how what they what they thought was was healthy um, and was good. And as hunter gatherers, we were definitely much more hygienic and. Um, we knew what we were doing. But yeah, if you're interested in history and you're interested in that period of time, definitely go to the Georgian House in Charlotte Square and definitely talk to the people there, the volunteers. They know their, they know their biz, they know everything, and it's very interesting to talk to them all. Yeah. One, two, three, four. Through the heart of a dream 
That was 10 Degrees of Strange by Johnny Flynn and Robert McFarlane uh, from the album Lost in the Cedarwood. And uh, this was a song which I found on YouTube. And the video for it is what I really loved. So if you liked what you heard and if you like stop motion animation, then my God, you got to get on that. It looks stunning. It's the most beautiful music video. And I really like the song. It's about running from grief or running from... Um, dark feelings whatever and um, the black dog being uh, representing uh, grief and you running from it and the video which is a stop motion clay animation um, it's just stunning like yeah just watch it that's what I have to say but now we're going to talk very briefly um, on Eurovision because I don't know about you but I tried to get Eurovision tickets last week 
tragically didn't get any, but it was worth the shot. But I've read an interesting article where where um, the National Lottery is actually going to be giving out Eurovision tickets, um, which is quite cool. So uh, if you didn't get any tickets and you want some, sign up to the National Lottery. Uh, up to 15,000 pairs of tickets for the National Lottery's big Eurovision welcome will be made available to lottery players in early April, which is probably where all the tickets went to be honest because I couldn't find any it's because the natural lottery snatched them all up um, so anyone who buys a lottery ticket before applying um, to count as a lottery player oh I'm reading the tickets are subject to a small booking fee and uh, some of the tickets have actually been saved for Ukrainian UK residents which is uh, very important because you know, Ukraine actually was was the people who won last year's Eurovision so it's lovely they're doing that um, and obviously loads have been saved for community groups in Liverpool oh, a part of me wishes it happened in Glasgow because if so then I could have maybe sneakily done something to, to go to that but um, yeah apparently also which is quite funny the prices of uh, places to stay during the time of Eurovision in Liverpool when Eurovision's coming on they have like skyrocketed to like thousands a night and Will Ferrell my mum actually told me this that Will Ferrell um, has posted like oh can anyone in Liverpool house me and my wife for Eurovision so I mean I personally wouldn't mind housing Will Ferrell legend but yeah that's the level we're at I think this is going to be a big deal I mean I can't remember the last time the UK won not that they won, but hosting the Eurovision. This is this is big biz. I mean, I'm a massive Eurovision fan. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's not that popular in the UK, which I, I understand. Um, I am Swedish, so maybe that has a little part to play in that. But yeah, if you didn't get any tickets, get yourself a lottery ticket and maybe you'll win, win some. I think I might do it. Why not? I really want to go. I want to see Sam Ryder. I want to see. I want to see the lot. It's uh it's very exciting. It's very, very exciting. And on that note, I want to play uh, one of my favorite. This is a bit rogue, but this is one of my favorite Eurovision songs ever. And it's Ukraine, but it's not the Ukraine one which won. It's the Ukraine song from 2021. So enjoy. This is Shum. <laughs> Been the Arts Hub show. I hope you've enjoyed. This is Sham. Pretty insane. I'll be back next week with another two hour show, so stay tuned.
all have an amazing rest of your Sunday. 12th of March, it is three minutes past four. I'm going to end with this song, so enjoy the beat drop, and I'll see you next week with another two-hour packed show. Yeah, have a fab week. Thank you.